Um, we're in the book of Acts this summer. This is an exciting story uh, in the life of the church. And sometimes people argue about what is the ba- book of Acts all about. They'll, they'll say, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Is it just a description of what happened way back then, kind of an historical account? Or is it normative? Is there something in the book of Acts that should guide our practice as a church? I would say both is my view. And so today as we go to this text, to this story, we're going to see God's Spirit speaking to two different individuals. God himself bringing uh, an angelic visitation at one time, a prompting of God's Spirit to two different hearts, and we're going to see the interaction of that. These are complex issues as we as God's people come because, you know, sometimes when I have an intuition or a feeling or a thought, it's actually that piece of pizza I ate before bed last night. But then there are other times when God's Spirit is working in me and he puts me in a particular place at a particular time to carry out his kingdom mission. And so one of the questions that I have as I come to Acts 10 and this whole section 10 through 12 really as the gospel is going out to all the nations of the earth, how do you know when God's Spirit is leading you? So hopefully as we go to God's word today, we will all be able to uh, have a better answer to that question as we leave. So let's, let's take a look here uh, at Acts chapter 10. We're going to encounter a man named Cornelius who God is seeking him. God is going after Cornelius. And so let's begin here in chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. What do we know about Cornelius from this first verse? First of all, he lives on the Mediterranean Sea in the northern part of Samaria. That's where the town of Caesarea is. Uh, So this is within Palestine, within the nation of Israel. And yet he is not a Jewish man. Um, He's not really even a Samaritan. He is is a centurion, which means he's a Roman official. He's a Roman soldier. So this is a Gentile. What's a Gentile? Somebody who's not a Jew. And we've seen now as the book of Acts is beginning and there's this new chapter opening up in God's story of the world. We've come through God's plan at the beginning, a good creation. Sin messed that up. God chose Israel to restore his plan. God sent his son Jesus to complete that work of redemption. And now there's the mission of the church that Jesus hands off, beginning here in the book of Acts with the disciples, the the, the early church now, to spread the news of King Jesus, beginning in Jerusalem, rippling out throughout all of Judea, to the neighboring region of Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's the story that we're a part of. And now God has put his finger on this Roman centurion, a Gentile, living in Caesarea. And what do we find out about, what else do we know about Cornelius? Verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. A lot of parallels between the description of Cornelius here in chapter 10 and Tabitha back in chapter 9. The difference is that Tabitha was a follower of Jesus. She was also generous. It says there in chapter 9, verse 36, she was full of good works and acts of charity. And so that was a reflection of Tabitha following after King Jesus. There was a working out of this decision, of this response to God drawing Tabitha to himself, the result was that it affected her relationships with others, causing her to do good works and to be generous. That's the process of discipleship. That's when we see King Jesus and we understand what he's all about and we, be, we, we begin to follow him and it affects what we do with our resources and our time, how we interact with others. Now, the, the interesting thing is Cornelius is not yet a follower of Jesus. He is a Roman He's a Gentile, and yet there are some markers and signs in his life of what we would say looks kind of like discipleship. You know, there's a risk of those who have good works without Jesus turning those good works into a God, lowercase g. Have you ever met someone like this? Maybe you've been this person where you think, you know, my, there's this cosmic scale of good deeds and bad deeds. And, you know, yeah, I acknowledge I do some bad things, but I try to do some good things to offset those. So hopefully at the end of my life, that scale will tip and there'll be a, a, just enough more good deeds than, than the bad 
and I'll make it into heaven as a result of my own works. You know, that God will look at me apart from Jesus and just go, you know what? You are justified. Good work. You've done it on your own strength. So there is a risk of taking those good works and turning that into a God. And yet we don't really see that characteristic here in the life of Cornelius. He, he's a devout man. He's, he is a seeker in the best sense of the word. So we're getting a little glimpse into his heart. It's not that he's worshiping the God of good works and human effort. It's not that he's um, seeing this, these good works as a means of salvation. And yet he is a person that we are going to see is receptive to God. And God looks at Cornelius and says, that's a guy that I can draw with my spirit. I can work with that kind of a heart. Totally different than the man we encountered in chapter 9 named Saul. Saul also came with some history, some context, some background. His history was in Judaism. He had read his Old Testament. He was trying to uphold that. He saw Jesus and the followers of Jesus as a threat to monotheism. So, you know, monotheism is the belief that there is one God. He's the God of the Old Testament. And now as Saul looks at these followers of this dude named Jesus, he decides that that's an affront to worshiping the one true creator God, and he begins to persecute the early church. And so he has some context, and God is able to work with that. And he says, I can use that zeal. I can use your story where you're at. I can use that hard heart and transform it and turn it into something I can use. And he meets him on the road to Damascus, blinds him, and speaks to him in an audible voice. So two totally different stories. Now Cornelius, without all the Jewish background, and yet with a devotion to God, with a desire to know God, praying continuously, having that ripple out to affect his family we saw here. In Greek, that word oikos. Oikos, that's kind of fun to say. That's your sphere of influence. That's your family. What is your oikos? Has your faith in God rippled out to affect that sphere of influence that he's given to you, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers? Who is that group of people, that community around you that the decisions that you make, God's drawing on your life will ripple out to affect them as well. And so here we have a man who is seeking God and yet that desire, that prayer, those good deeds are not sufficient to bring him to God. He's still lacking. And that's where God steps in. And he says, I will draw you to myself. You, you've been reaching out a hand, and now I'm about to take that hand and pull you to where you need to be because you can't get there on your own. And so God, in a dr dramatic fashion, reaches out to Cornelius here in verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now, this will give us an idea of whether we should keep those precious moments figurines in that display case in our house. You know, those cute little angels with the nice little sayings, little halos. Here's how people always react in God's word when they meet an angel. Verse 4. And he stared at him in terror. Do you have any precious moments figurines like that? And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. God had been seeking Cornelius. He'd been hearing the prayers ascending. He'd been seeing his devotion. He'd been seeing what he had done with his resources, sharing with those in need generously. And God now taps into that context and he says, I see you, Cornelius. I know what you're looking for and I've been looking for you. And I'm going to give you some very clear instructions on how you're going to find the answers you've been looking for, the meaning of life, where real joy is. And he speaks to him in dramatic fashion. I, have you ever had an angelic visitation 
where the angel said, go to this town, get this dude by this name, and, and await further instructions. I have not. And yet I know that some people have. When I hear stories like this outside of the Bible, I'll be, I'll be honest, I'm skeptical. I'm thinking, really? Did that happen? But there's some things here in the story that, I, that give me hope in terms of God coming and revealing himself in dramatic fashion such as this. Number one, Cornelius is sharing the story with others. He's got, you know, here we have a devout soldier. We've got a couple of servants, and he's telling, this is what just happened to me. I don't know how to process this, but I was given instruction, so you guys go to Joppa, look for this guy. So he's processing this in community. Number two, the message, the message of the angel, the message that the angel brings to Cornelius is not elevated to the level of revelation of canon of Scripture. Does that make sense? And here's how I know that, because later on, in this same chapter, around about verse 30, Cornelius retells what we just read. And yet, it's not verbatim. It's not a verbatim account. It's not that Cornelius memorized the words of the angel. He, he gives a basic summary of what the angel says. So I, I, I see those as a couple of cues on how we can be open to God speaking in dramatic fashion, maybe through a dream, through a vision, through a prompting of his spirit, maybe through an angelic visitation, and yet not raise that to the, to the level of the authority of Scripture. I think those would be good principles. One, process this in community. Say, this is what happened to me. Brother or sister in Christ, help me to understand how this fits in. God's never going to speak through an angel to you in a way that contradicts what he's already revealed in his word. He's never going to speak through a message from another human in a way that goes against what he's revealed in his word. They will line up. And yet in this case, Cornelius has given some very specific instructions. You need to go to this town, send someone to this town. There's someone named with this name that has a message for you that you need to hear. And so Cornelius responds with obedience. What we see by Cornelius' obedience there in verses 7 and 8 is a heart that is receptive to God. That's really the lesson from Cornelius, that, that this obedience is indicating his response to God calling him and drawing him. The good news is that God is still at work calling and drawing men and women, boys and girls, to himself today. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's why you're here in this room. You've driven past that The Way Church sign at that, at that intersection enough weeks and finally you felt some tug and you say, let's, let's get up and go check it out. Let's see what's happening. And maybe God is drawing you and there's something new and exciting about to happen. God is drawing you by his spirit and he's speaking to you. Are you willing to have that same heart posture that Cornelius had? Say, okay, God, I don't know what the end of this story is yet, but I'm going to follow and respond. I want to be open to you as you work. Not only that, but the good news is if you are a follower of Jesus, there are people in your life that God is drawing to himself, and it's not a coincidence that you are a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate to that person. God has you exactly where he needs you to be because he wants to use you to spread the good news of his kingdom, to bring the good news of King Jesus to those people that he is drawing to himself. So that should be exciting, okay? A little a little enthusiasm would be okay. I see a lot of fear and kind of, okay. No, I'm talking to each one of us, right? This is the, the joy that we have of being on a mission from the king. So that's Cornelius. Now we leave scene one. Cornelius and his three guys now sent off to Joppa. Don't know how that story's gonna end. Now we go over to Joppa to find out what God is doing on the other side of this story. The next day, verse nine, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Don't miss that little phrase there. Peter, a follower of Jesus, what's he doing? He's praying. How does God speak to his followers who are on a mission to spread the news of King Jesus? Through his word and prayer. And Peter is now putting himself in that posture, saying, 
God, I'm yours. I'm available to you. So he's taking time to pray. He's aligning his heart with the king's heart. And in that moment, something dramatic happens to him. Verse 10, he became hungry. That's not that dramatic. And he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. He's a good Jewish man. He eats only kosher food. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Is anyone confused by this story? If you are, I got good news. Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Very next verse. So if you're hearing this whole story about Peter's praying, he gets hungry, they're making a meal, he falls into a trance, he has a vision of a sheet with a bunch of unclean animals on it, reptiles, stuff that Jewish people are not supposed to eat, he hears a a voice instructing him to eat it, and he's confused. What does all this mean? Well, just hang on to that confusion a little bit. God is doing something big here. Over here, he's working in the life of a man named Cornelius in a way that's going to ripple out to affect his entire family. But over here, he's working in the life of a man named Peter in a way that's going to affect the entire early church and its focus and its mission to bring good news not only to Jerusalem but also to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So God is at work preparing Peter's heart, which will then in turn ripple out to affect all of the leadership of the early church and their focus and their commitment to obeying God's leading and following his voice. So although Peter is inwardly perplexed, now let's find out where his heart is as he's had this vision that he does not yet understand. Also, I should mention, just like Cornelius' summary of his encounter with the angel is not at the level of the authority of the canon of scripture the same clues are there on Peter's dream he recounts this dream a little bit later in chapter 11 you can read that compare those two accounts from the the dream as it's recorded in chapter 10 and as Peter retells it in chapter 11 verses 5 and following you'll see that Cornelius or that Peter is giving a basic summary of this dream that he had he's not saying, you know, now this is holy scripture, the, tra- the dream that I had in a trance. And yet it is a way that God spoke to him and guided him and led him and communicated to him. Peter also process- processes his encounter in the context of believing community. Just as Cornelius shared it with others who eventually become believers, Peter also shares his story with others there in chapter 11. So now, what does Peter do in response? Verse 17, chapter 10. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. The two stories are coming together now. What's going to happen next? And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision not yet hearing these guys at the gate. The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Now, once again, God, God speaks in a variety of ways. You know, we've seen the angelic visit. We've seen the trance. Now we have uh, the, the Spirit giving, giving him some, a little bit more information. Peter, there's three guys looking for you. Peter's not questioning his own sanity at this point, not thinking that he's got voices in his head. There's some way that Peter is able to discern this is God's Spirit speaking to me and prompting my heart. And he's receptive. And he's open to God's Spirit leading even though he does not yet understand and he can't see the end. I think there's there's times that God will lead you this way 
where he gives you just enough information for that next step. And then when you find yourself in that position, God's saying, I've got a task for you. I want you to go from here to there. I want you to call this person that I've brought to your mind. I want you to send a text message. And you're going, I I think that might have been God's Spirit speaking to me. I'm not really sure why. I'm perplexed by this. I'm confused. As we are willing to take those steps of obedience, as we are immersing ourselves in his word and in prayer, his spirit will lead us and guide us along the way. And he is carrying out his kingdom mission. He chooses to use those who are receptive to him in that task. And it's an exciting journey of faith when you don't know what the next step is going to be and yet you take that first step of obedience and then God makes it more explicit, more clear. He says, all right, here's what you do next. And so in verse 20, As Peter has now been in prayer, he's been watching, listening, obeying, he's following God's Spirit, he's now on board with what Jesus himself said in chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're seeing that played out now here in the life of the early church and through these two individuals. So verse 20, as the Holy Spirit has spoken to Peter and said, There's a couple guys at your door. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. I pray that God gives you evangelism opportunities that are this easy. Where people show up at your house and they say, I I, I don't know why I'm here. God told me to come and talk to you and you'd have something to tell me. Sometimes you need to be a little bit more assertive and take the lead. But when, when God serves it up to you on a silver platter like this, don't make an excuse. Don't be too busy. Don't be too doubting of your own ability to articulate the gospel. Just get on board with what God is doing. He's chosen to use you, and he's put you in that place, so get excited. Peter invites them in, and they spend some time together, and the next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is significant. Something big is happening here in the early church. What Jesus said will happen when the Holy Spirit comes is now happening, and there's some Jewish Followers of Jesus that are now going to the home of this Gentile. A whole group of them, a whole gang with Peter. Heading down to see what God will lead next, how he will work, how he will orchestrate the story that is unfolding here. So the Spirit says, rise and go. Peter gets up and he goes. This is, you know, we, we saw a, a salvation call from heaven in chapter 9 and 10, right? Saul on the road to Damascus. Jesus himself appears. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And there's a message from heaven given to Saul. Now in chapter 10, we see a message from heaven, a salvation call from heaven to Cornelius. And you know, the other parallel, there is an evangelism call from heaven in both chapters as well. In chapter 9, there's a guy named Ananias. And he's, he's not a reluctant, he is a reluctant evangelist. God has to appear to him in dramatic fashion and say, there's a guy named Saul coming. I want you to share good news with him. Ananias is like, that's the guy that persecutes the church. I don't want to die. God says, just do what I told you. And Ananias is faithful. Chapter 10, we have another evangelism call from heaven. Peter, I'm sending some guys your way. Get ready to share good news. And Peter is willing to obey. This is how God works. He draws people to himself. He calls his followers to be the ones that proclaim good news. And we just get on board with what he is doing, with his kingdom mission. He chooses to use receptive vessels like you and I 
who humbly come and say, God, it's not my good works, it's not my strength, it's not my intellect, it's not my ability to articulate really persuasive arguments that will cause people to look at their lives and go, this is unsatisfactory, I want to go the path of Jesus. He does all the work. We just get to be a part of what he's doing as we are receptive and open, as we get up and go like Peter did. And verse 21 indicates this receptivity that Peter has as he gets up and he goes down. He says, I'm the guy. And now he's moving forward in obedience. So let's find out what happens as finally Peter and Cornelius meet. Verse 24, on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. There's that oikos. Cornelius' entire sphere of influence is gathered around to hear what's this guy, Simon Peter, who's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in this other city. I had this angelic vision. Let's get together and find out what this guy has to say. Remember that Cornelius is a God-fearing man. He's been praying. He's got this heart posture of receptivity. But he's still misguided. Listen to what happens here in verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter puts a, a, a quick end to that. Peter lifted him up saying, Stand up. I too am a man. This is a recurrent theme in the book of Acts. And, and I saw that the youth uh, theme for camp coming up is choose. They've got it on their t-shirt. Really, you see that as a theme here in the book of Acts. There's, there's this decision between human effort and God's effort. And several times in the book of Acts, there are people who are given the opportunity to look to themselves as gods, to look to their own strength, to draw attention to themselves. And some of those people, unfortunately, go down that path and they face consequences. Others reject that opportunity to be worshipped by other mere mortals and they give glory to God. You see it in chapter 8 when Simon, who had been a magician, comes to follow Jesus. It says in chapter 8, verse 9, that he had been saying that he himself was somebody great. So prior to encountering Jesus, Simon the magician thought he was hot stuff. And he let everyone else know that. And now even though he has become a Christ follower, he sees that as, he, as the disciples lay hands on people, they receive the Holy Spirit. And he goes, I want that. I'd like to buy that ability. And he's sternly rebuked because of that desire to draw attention to himself. You know, it's great to want to be used by God. And we should each desire that, but it's to glorify him, not to draw attention to ourselves. And here in, in chapter 10 now, Cornelius sees Peter coming in. What, what happens to Peter's ego in that moment? As this important, influential, powerful centurion and all of his buddies are there and he walks in the room, Cornelius falls down to worship him, to deify him. And immediately Peter's instinct is to reject that temptation and to give glory to God. I'm a mere man like you. Chapter 12, we meet uh, a guy named Herod. And when given the opportunity to receive glory, he takes that opportunity. And we'll meet him a little later. But he's sitting on a throne in his royal robes. He's delivering a speech to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And as he's speaking and declaring Whatever he's saying, the, the people of Tyre are calling out, the voice of a God and not of a man. We see there in chapter 12 that immediately an angel of the Lord strikes Herod down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last as a reminder of where he came from and who gave him life. The one who breathed life into dirt now snuffs out his life, turns him into worm excrement, sucks the life out of him. Says, you know, Herod, I'm sorry, you, you forgot to give glory to the maker of heaven and earth, the, the one who breathes life. 
And while we see that sad end to Herod's life, there's a, a message of hope at the end of that verse that says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Every form of mathematics is going on there. God's word is, is being multiplied, it's being added to, it's increasing. And anyone who draws attention to himself or herself, who glorifies himself, who sets themselves up to be a God, lowercase g, they're going to come to dust, to lifelessness. But those who give glory to God will be used in his kingdom. And his word will increase and multiply. Later in chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are involved in a healing. In Lystra, there's a crippled man. God uses them to bring healing in that situation. And as the the people of Lystra see that, they call out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Once again, there's that decision. And yet they, they are quick to say, we are men. And then follow up with, we bring you good news. And so they they take that opportunity to proclaim the glory of God, to proclaim King Jesus. This is a template for how we as followers of God are to respond when God chooses to use us. When God draws you and he calls you and he speaks to you in a variety of ways and he puts you in that situation where you have an opportunity, sometimes to be used in dramatic fashion, maybe a prayer of healing. Maybe you're the one that proclaims the gospel to a hard heart who's turned from sin and darkness to God and to light and to new life. You know, maybe, maybe you're the one that shares the good news with the next Billy Graham. What do you do with that? Do you put that on your resume? Do you snap that, tweet that, whatever the other social media options are, and go, look at me, I'm the one who brought the good news to this sin-hardened heart. And look at how important I am because now what, what they did in the kingdom of God. It's not about us. There is joy that comes. And there is rejoicing. And, and we as your brothers and sisters in Christ will rejoice to see you use the gifts that God has given you to proclaim good news, to bring truth, and yet let's always be quick to bring glory to God and not to ourselves. And that's the, the, the pattern that we have here with Peter, he's, he's willing to be used by God. He yields to the prompting of God's Spirit, and yet he's not willing to have glory come to himself. So he says, stand up. I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Once again, there's a crowd. Cornelius' house, verse 28. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. Maybe Peter is wrestling with this a bit. So he's now voicing this to the crowd gathered in Cornelius' house. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Remember the vision, the weird dream that Peter had the day before that he was perplexed by? All of a sudden it's clicking for him. And finally now as the circumstances are unfolding, He's understanding it wasn't about the reptiles on the sheet. It's about the Gentiles in the room. And people that I would have said are unclean, common. Jesus himself has spoken to me and said, don't call anything common or unclean that I have made clean. God is at work on his kingdom mission, drawing people to himself. It goes beyond the Jews. It includes the Gentiles. Peter, get on board with what I am doing. Your Holy, my Holy Spirit has been poured out on you to make disciples of all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, but then going all the way to the ends of the earth, people that you have previously thought were unclean. Peter, you had an evangelism strategy. You had a blueprint. You had a plan. Tear it up and throw it out because God's Spirit is working in a new way, and he's going to reach people that you would have written off. Peter's now getting on board with God's heart to reach even the Gentiles. Verse 29, so when I was sent for, Peter continues, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. Putting the ball back in Cornelius' court. And Cornelius now retells his side of the story. Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. 
and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And there it is. I hope, I hear, I hope we hear some stories about this kind of thing happening in our church this year. That God just serves it up and says, hey, you know the good news. Here's your moment to share the good news with a whole room full of hungry people that God's been drawing and working and preparing that soil of their hearts. To me, this is a clear reminder that it's God who acts and we react. It's all about God's actions. And yet, we're not robots. You know, we are made in the image of God. We get to get on board with his kingdom mission. That's our privilege and joy. That when he calls, we come with that same open heart posture. When he says, like he did to Peter, get up and go, we get up and go. When When he prompts the heart of a guy like Cornelius, send a couple guys to Joppa, he does that. Not, not overly intellectualizing things, having to have every dot connected, having to know the end goal before we begin to obey, but being receptive and getting on board, maybe getting it wrong sometimes. Maybe taking that risk and saying, all right, I think God called me to go to Joppa. Here I am. I'm not exactly sure why I'm here. And being in that place of being perplexed like Peter was and then waiting to see how God leads and guides. God is the one who's acting. We react with obedience, with following, with listening. And so now it's, it's all clicked for Peter. There's no more question about why the dream about the sheet, why the three guys here asking for me, why am I heading down to this guy's house that I don't know. Now from the mouth of Cornelius and those gathered, they're saying, give us the good news. And so... What does Peter do? Well, he opened his mouth. This is how the gospel happens, right? It's great if your life exemplifies the life of a follower of Jesus. That is a must. Okay, so that people can look at your actions, see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. That's great. And yet, presenting the gospel also requires words. And so here, Peter opens his mouth and he says, now listen to his sermon. I want you to uh, listen to this in contrast to a couple of the other sermons that we've seen in the book of Acts. Prior to this, the sermons have been delivered to Jewish audiences. So Peter's sermons, Paul's sermons, they're given to Jewish leaders. um, Jewish people from all the nations of the earth gathered in Jerusalem. And so you'll see a lot of Old Testament quotations in those earlier sermons. A message contextualized to the audience. But now as Peter is proclaiming, he's now in a a Gentile setting. Quoting from the Old Testament is not going to uh, reach the context of the hearers there in Cornelius' household. There is a reference to the prophets, but other than that, we're not seeing lengthy quotes from the Old Testament. Instead, he's tapping into themes that are relevant in Cornelius' life. The fact that he's a God-fearer. The fact that he's been generous, that he's seeking after God, the good works uh, that he has demonstrated. Now, but he then gets to the gospel quickly. He, he elevates King Jesus. He talks about resurrection. He does proclaim the good news, not a watered-down version for Cornelius' context. And yet there is an awareness of the, the ears of the hearer. So Peter opened his mouth and said, verse 34, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, 
for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and of the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That believe is not just intellectual assent to an idea. That believe pistis in Greek it's, it's putting faith in something. You know, you, you put faith in the hinges on that theater chair you're sitting on today that it wouldn't let you down. And you sat in that chair. That's the kind of belief that we're seeing in the Word. Not, not an intellectual idea that, yeah, yes, theoretically I believe that the engineers that, that designed this chair built it to support somewhat of my size. But it's actually the sitting in the chair that's the belief. And that's the sermon that Peter preaches to the household of Cornelius. The good news of Jesus, the Savior, the Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, crucified and risen. All who believe in Him will have their sins forgiven. Not not just a, a, a physical healing of this body which is mortal and will one day turn to dust as we breathe our last whether or not we receive healing on this side of eternity, but, but a, a, a deeper level of healing that affects your life in eternity, your sins forgiven. This is good news to Cornelius. There's no sinner's prayer here. And yet it is a, it is a compact gospel message. It's exactly what Cornelius and those present need to hear. God has been drawing you to himself. Yes, people like you, Cornelius, Gentiles, far off from God, And that message is for you. He's the Lord of all, including Roman centurions and their known associates. God knows who you are. He knows your name. There's forgiveness for your sins. There's eternal life available to you because Jesus is risen. That proves it. And there's no altar call. There's no now bow your heads and repeat after me because all of a sudden God interrupts the sermon. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter, remember there's a Peter and his buddies, they're seeing what's happening. And they're amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues just like on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Once again, baptism as an initiation. Okay? Not baptism as a sign of sanctification. It's an initiation thing. It's I am a brand new baby Christian. I don't understand any of this yet. But I've heard the good news and I've responded. God's spirit is poured out. I am a son of the king, a daughter of the king. Let's, let's get dunked to make it official and say, I'm in. I'm all in. Every part of me from head to toe committed to serving Jesus as Lord and Savior. I suspect we have some people here that maybe you've been delaying and waiting and thought, you know, I got to make sure that my life, you know, I check off certain things and I'm still eating meat sacrificed to idols. You know, I'm still eating unclean meat. I got to get circumcised before I'm worthy of baptism. I got good news for you. If you are a new creation in Christ, baptism is the first step that you can do. We have a swimming pool right here that we have access to. So just talk to one of the pastors or elders and we can do it next Sunday as long as there's not a swim meet, which I don't think there are over the summertime. 
But this is a normal part of following Jesus. It's a, a way of a, a public outward sign of what God has done in our hearts. And so now we've got a, a bunch of Jewish Christ followers whose minds have just been blown, including Peter. And this whole Gentile mission has now been launched here in chapter 10. It's going to get messy. It always does when people unlike us come to King Jesus. You know, if it's all middle class people from southeast Aurora that look like us, work the same place as we do, go to the same school as our kids. You know, we can imagine what will that look like to have them come to Jesus and begin to fellowship with us. But what if God calls someone unlike you to himself? People from every tongue, tribe, and nation, every racial and ethnic background, maybe speaking different languages, different customs, eating different kinds of foods, and they come to Jesus. What's going to happen to our church? Because that's what God is doing. His kingdom is bigger than people who look like me and act like me and dress like me. His kingdom includes people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And as we come to the king, it gets messy. In the early church, it got messy. There was conflict. There was working this out. How are we going to get along? Who do we bring the good news to? Who gets priority? And by chapter 15, they need to have an official meeting of the early church and get together as, as Pastor Mark shared a few weeks ago. How are we going to do this? How are we going to carry out God's kingdom mission when there's a lot of complexity to this? There is a God who is at work. He's acting. And we put ourselves into his hands as vessels that he can work through. Let, sit back and let him do his work. What if Peter had clung to his Jewish-centered evangelism strategy? What if he would have said, go into a Gentile's house? I don't think so. Be around unclean people, common people? Uh-uh. You know, that, that prompting of the spirit that I thought I heard, that must have just been some wacky dream. What if Peter explained away the dream or rationalized away the prompting of God's Holy Spirit, figured out some way to just stick with his paradigm? What if Cornelius had been content with his own human effort? You know, I'm a devout God-fearer. I'm generous. I pray a lot. It's good enough. I'm better than a lot of these other people around me. And yet neither of them were content in their own ability, in their own intellect, in their own strength. Both of them were yielded to God's Spirit. And look at the beautiful story that emerges. As we now have one heart turned fully to God and that ripples out to affect his entire family. We see the Holy Spirit being poured out on, on this whole group that's assembled. Not just Cornelius the individual, but rippling out to affect his friends, his family. We, we don't know who's all there that day, but there's a crowd gathered. And there's a dramatic conversion story that affects an entire oikos. That's the way our God works. Our vision as individualistic Americans is way too narrow when it comes to salvation. When God works, it's not just in the I, the individual, have decided to follow Jesus, though none go with. No, God works in ways like this where there's dramatic stories of entire groups of people coming to himself. And then on this side, we've got Peter, who when the Holy Spirit says, get up and go, he says, all right, I'm going to get up and go. I, I'm perplexed. I don't fully understand what's happening, but I know that I've been instructed by God to obey. I'm going to be open and receptive and see what he does. And all of his paradigms are blown. Unclean. I've been raised since I was a little boy to avoid anything common and unclean. And now God is telling me in a vision that I'm to have a new perspective, have his perspective. And he gets to be a part of what God is doing in drawing Cornelius and his household to himself. Have you denied the supernatural? either in your beliefs or in your practice? Have you had a, a nice, safe, Western way of looking at reality 
Have you hung on to a formula rather than yielding to God's Spirit prompting you and leading you? Well, then I think today is the day to surrender that to Him and to, as we saw Peter and Cornelius both doing, pray. Pray and say, God, today I yield to you. Today when you say get up and go, I, I want to be that person who's available to you who is receptive to your Spirit, leading, tilling up that soil of people's hearts, placing you in the place that you need to be, and then opening your mouth and proclaiming good news. Can we make that our prayer today as individuals, as families, as a church? Why don't we stand together in his presence and ask him to fill us with his spirit so that we can be witnesses for him, to use us in his kingdom mission. God, we thank you today that you are at work drawing people to yourself. For those of us who are believers today, we thank you that at some point in our past, whether we were reaching a hand up to you or walking away from you, you reached out to us. You pulled us to yourself. You brought a faithful servant into our lives who would open their mouth and proclaim the good news in a way that we could comprehend. And God, today those of us who are followers of King Jesus, today we pray that prayer and we say, God, make us a vessel that you can work through. We yield to you. When you say get up and go, we want to be quick to obey. God, as you prompt us by your spirit, as you speak to us through your word or through a dream or through dramatic fashion, we want to test all things by your word and process it within the context of believing community. And yet as you call us to go to particular places, you place us in circumstances, you bring people into our paths, then like Peter, we want to open our mouth and proclaim the good news of King Jesus. So we pray, God, that you would use us. Lord, that you would be faithful to fulfill what you promised you would. And we trust that you are pouring out your spirit, making us effective as witnesses to people of every background, whether at home or far away. And God, today I lift up the, the Cornelius in the room today who has checked off a lot of things off of that righteous works list. And you've drawn them today to this place. There's been good deeds, there's been prayer, there's been generosity, and yet there's still something lacking. And that's why today, by your Spirit, you've drawn them to a place where they can hear the good news of King Jesus proclaimed. I pray today would be that, that day that you pour out your Holy Spirit on their heart and on their life, where there is a radical transformation, a turning from sin, and a turning to you as you cleanse them of all sin and unrighteousness by the blood of your Son, Jesus. We thank you, God, that as you work through us and use us, we have that privilege and joy of bringing glory to you. And God, if there's been ever a day that we've been tempted to prop ourselves up to allow people to sing our praises, that today we, we reject that method and today we, we give glory to you. We acknowledge that we are mere men and women and yet children of the King, sons and daughters of God that you choose to work through. Use us, Lord, to bring change to entire households and neighborhoods, to bring them to repentance and to a saving knowledge of Jesus as we're faithful to go as your witnesses. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's hear some exciting stories of how God is using us on his kingdom mission this week. God bless you as you go.